Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 16 of The Fix. I'm Angel Borelli. In this episode of my off-season series, guest coach Steve Harrow is back with part two of his most insightful questions. Steve is the associate head coach at Morrow Bay High School in the central coast of California. Hi, Steve. How are you today? Hey, Angel. Thanks for having me back to The Fix. Oh, yeah. The last show was so great. In fact, I got a great question from a youth coach, and Timothy sent some excellent, excellent questions that I didn't cover because, you know, I was dealing with talking about your guys since you were the uh, coach. But I want to go over some things at the end because I think they'll be really useful for all the youth coaches out there. So anyway, what's on your mind today? I was going to ask you about the position player and when he takes the mound. Okay. We rarely have a pitcher only, but could you discuss the mechanics and how they're different from the position to the mound? Right. Yes, I, I do know that, and this is, of course, again, especially relevant with youth pitchers, but I do know that in high school, they do play more than one position. In fact, I heard the head coach at College Park, Andy Tarpley, say, we don't want our pitchers to be pitchers only because he feels it's developmental in the sense of playing baseball. And, you know, he's a great coach with tons of experience. And I thought about it and I said, yeah, I I think I kind of get it. Me, I would love to put the pitchers in a bubble and not let them do anything else. But anyway, but it's not, it's not the case. And so we have to deal with reality. So here's the thing that is the most important thing for coaches to understand. And then it's what you want to look for, because if you're putting someone on the mound, just because he's got a good arm in his position, if he looks really bad as a pitcher, he may be one of those kids that should not take the mound because the mound is where the pitcher can get hurt. He's not going to get hurt. You know, we don't hear position players getting surgeries, et cetera. So here's the deal that you want to look for. And then I will talk about how to kind of guide players through this. So first of all, there is absolutely no position on the field where when the player gets the ball, he hangs onto it before he throws it so that he can position himself correctly. The players are moving to the ball, picking up the ball and getting it off in whatever angle they have to get it off on to whatever player they have to get to to make the play. And this is especially true for shortstops, third basemen, when they're getting hit on that side and they've got to try to get the ball across the field. So there is really no consistent arm angle that a position player uses during the game. Now, we hope that position players play catch to warm up correctly, but they don't. If they're throwing sidearm or sort of leading with the elbow in their position, they tend to warm up that way. I don't think that's correct, but it is what I see on the field. And since I don't work with the teams, You know, but I do tell my pitchers that when they're warming up before a game and they're playing catch with their teammates, they should play correctly, you know, throw correctly. But let's talk about the exact playing of the game. So you've got guys that they're the main thing about being an infielder, especially, is that he gets to the ball and gets the ball off. And the guy who's got to throw from the outfield, he's throwing at a different trajectory because he's got to get the ball up and over. So you've got position players that have different angles than a pitcher. 
Now, what happens is because all of those other positions are what I call speed positions. So they've trained themselves. So let's talk about, let's say, a shortstop. They've trained themselves to get to the ball as fast as they can and get the ball off as fast as they can. So you take that shortstop and you put him on a mound and you say, now, listen, you come out of the glove slowly, you bring the ball back away from the hitter, then you face him and then your shoulder, which is way back and stretched, then you throw the ball. It's so counterintuitive to them. In essence, it's completely opposite of what a shortstop would do. Exactly. It's completely opposite. Now, they are trained to be fast. When you're learning two skills, one's fast and one's slow, the fast one dominates your nervous system. Yeah. Okay, because it's life or death for that shortstop if he lets that ball get by him or he can't get to it to get it across the field to first base. So it's a dominant skill. So is being a catcher. And this is, you know, catchers, they're throwing as much as a pitcher. They lead with the elbow because they, again, have to pop up, get that ball to whatever base to make a play. So they, again, are what we call traditionally what I call they've got a speed skill, not when they're throwing back, but they're throwing back in the way that their brain has shifted. So we've got all these guys who throw at different angles, none of which use the shoulder the way the pitcher does, none of which have a motion preceding the throw that is precise and controlled and the same every time. So you're following me so far? Pitching motion, we want them coming out of their glove, loading the back hip, striding downhill, turning in three pieces, stretching the shoulder, the balls as far away from the hitter as possible, and then he accelerates. That doesn't sound like anything on the field, right? Again, completely opposite. Completely opposite. So coaches, what you want to look for, and this is, I just said this to a great pitcher that I work with, who's also a shortstop. And believe it or not, shortstops are the ones that make the most errors on the mound in terms of the motion, even though they may be awesome with getting the ball over the plate. But the way they do it, when I work with a shortstop, converting them or working with them as a pitcher, they're the most difficult to work with because they really get a lot of balls. They really are the are fast athletes. They really throw, you know, they may be roping it to, to second base. They may be, you know, sliding in to get the ball and then spinning to throw it off. I mean, they really and truly, in fact, you could probably say that probably more for a shortstop than any other position. So the deal is, is that when I'm working with them, they're difficult. But here's what I heard myself say to this pitcher the other day. I said, listen, if you're going to do this, and he's got a very messed up shoulder from trying to do both and not doing the pitching correctly. What I said to him is, and this is what you want to say to your guys, you have to shift gears. It's like two different dials. You know, it's like AM and FM. They have to first hear what I'm saying right now, really understand conceptually, you're doing something now that's completely different. You are not in the middle of a play the minute you get the ball. You are in complete control 
of the environment. And unless someone's on base, he really can take all the time he wants or do whatever he wants with the timing. So he is really in control. And he has to also understand that you have to have the ball moving through a certain range in order for him to be precise with speed and with precision around the plate. So you have that discussion with them first so that they get the concept of, first of all, the difference in the two positions. Does that make sense, Steve? It makes great sense. Yeah, you start there. Okay, then the second thing is you want to understand that you're putting a kid on the mound who's got a great arm at what he does, but that the shoulder does not work the same way. The axis of rotation is completely different because the player, whenever he's got the ball in his hand, think about it, unless it's a fly out or something like where he just catches the ball and he doesn't have to do anything, but he's still got to get the glove out there to catch it. The deal is if he's doing something in the game, he is got to get the ball going to wherever it's going as soon as possible. That's not the case with the pitcher. So you have a completely different action at the shoulder. So the pitchers that you put on the mound, if they are especially shortstops or catchers, you're going to see an arm action that probably to your eye looks a little weird. You'll see the ball closer to the ear. You will see them come out of the glove way too fast. This is like the biggest problem. So let's start at the beginning of the motion. They'll come out of the glove way too fast because they do not know how when they start their motion to be slower. And the slowest part of the motion should be coming out of the glove and getting into that early cocking position. If you race out of the glove, you have to put the brakes on at the early cocking position, meaning when the front foot lands in the stride. And when you have to put the brakes on in the middle of a motion, you don't transition correctly because the next part of the motion has got to be a higher gear. You'll almost be in a slower gear. So you'll see them come out of the glove and go into the stride going 100 miles an hour, and then the rest is just up for grabs. And that's also the case for just a PO that might move too fast. The timing of the motion, you've got to have the speed being accumulated once you start turning. If you're slamming on the brakes before then, it takes a second to get up and go again. So you want smooth transition. So the first thing you're going to look for is that they're coming out of the glove calmly and with some sort of sense of that they're not rushing. And that's the beginning and the first thing you want to look at with the position players. Because remember, when they get their hands on the ball, it's go time. So for them, when they see the ball coming towards them, it's go time. And then it's get it off any way you can. So the first thing you want to look for is the timing out of the glove. The second thing is what they are or are not doing with their shoulder. You're not going to see full external rotation If you see him as he comes into early cocking, he's got the sense that he's going to whip the ball. He's got the ball near his ear. 
a right-handed pitcher will have the ball near his right ear, and he's almost got the sense that he's going to rope it down the line right from that position there, whereas a pitcher takes the ball that's not near his ear, pulls it behind him because he's stretching his shoulder, and then throws it. So the second thing you're going to see is that arm angles off because the ball is like in that preparation position. If you can picture a shortstop down on the ground, scooping the ball into the glove, his hand's already in front of him, and then he just, from right in front of him, throws it. That's the look it's going to have. Steve, have you seen that look? Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I see it all the time from all levels. Yep. Yeah, and that's them not understanding the notion that, no, you want to stretch the shoulder because you don't accelerate until your body has fully stretched so you can be behind the ball. They don't get that. So now you've got the ball near the ear. Then you're going to have the leading with the elbow issue. And when you have the leading with the elbow issue, you're going to get funny spin on the ball for a pitcher. Does that make sense, Steve? Do you see that as well? Yes, I do. Yep. Yeah, because remember, and I and I know on the first off-season podcast when I had Joe demonstrating with the still shots, what happens when the ball isn't brought through correctly from the shoulder, when it's, you know, you've led with the elbow, it rotates the forearm. That's just the way the body's designed. So the ball is actually, he's almost got his fingers on the side of the ball. Now pitchers and players can kind of feel it. So then in the middle of that motion, they're trying to turn their hand to get behind it. And it's why the number one complaint you're going to have from the pitcher who is a shortstop or a catcher, and this could be for other positions too, is he's going to complain about forearm tightness or soreness because he's not coming through correctly, but he knows enough to know the way a four-seam is supposed to be released, and especially if he's got other pitches. So he's going to be struggling to position his hand when he's coming from that leading with the elbow position, whereas someone who's a pitcher who just knows how to deliver from the shoulder, his hand is already behind the ball. The position player will have to struggle a second time to get his hand behind the ball, and that's where they get that funkiness in their forearm. Is any of this ringing any bells with any of the players you've had? Yeah, definitely out of the glove way too fast is a very common. Can you explain a little bit more about, you said that when that happens, he has to break. Explain that a little bit to me. Okay. So if you are backing your car out of the garage and for some reason you hit the gas really hard, let's say you're 16 years old and you don't know how to drive smoothly. (laughs) So you hit the gas 60 miles an hour and you're just backing out of your garage. So you're only going to be going about, you know, 10, 15 feet back so you can go forward. You have to screech on the brakes, correct? Correct. Yep. That's an abrupt stop. So your transition from reverse to forward is going to be, it's going to be delayed because you had to screech on the brakes. It jolts you Then you have to put it forward and then you go. So you had to abruptly create a stop. It took a second to regroup. 
because first of all, mentally, mentally, you know, oh my God, what did I just do? Plus it jolts the whole movement. Whereas if you back out slowly, you can transition and go. And I would bet if we put a timer on both scenarios, the guy who had to slam on his brakes ended up taking much longer to get going because of that abrupt thing. So in lever mechanics, which is what we're dealing with whenever we're dealing with a sport motion, in lever mechanics, you've got one lever, one part of your body, passing something on to the next part. In order for it to do that, it always has to kind of slow down so the other lever can pick up and move forward. We want the transitions to be smooth so the transitions are not jarring to the motion and to where you're not spending more time hitting the brakes because if you have to stop too abruptly. So the pitcher who comes out of the glove, let's say he's not even coming out of the glove like a pitcher, which, by the way, is another thing at the beginning of the motion. They'll short arm it. They'll have the ball in the glove at their sternum, picture a right-handed pitcher, and he just breaks right at chest level out just the way he does on the field. Yeah, I see a lot of that. Yeah, they don't go down to their waistline and then come up because they're not trying. They want to already be up. Whereas with the pitcher, he needs to go down and come up with his arms because he's got a lot going on with his shoulder and that's preparing the shoulder. So he'll come out real fast, which then, by the way, puts the legs behind the arms. So then at some point, the two parts are going to have to catch up. A myriad of things can happen. But he comes out of the glove so fast, boom, he just jarred his motion. Second, his timing is off because think about the the movement of pitching. The timing is the same as a jumping jack. The arms go up and they come together just as the feet land. And if you're doing a half jack, your body automatically figures the timing and the arms get to shoulder height as the feet come out. That's innate timing between upper and lower. When you have a pitcher coming out too fast, you have to hit the brakes hard. You have to regroup. This is the body regrouping. You've already created a problem with timing. And even though this kid may not be a pitcher who pitches all the time, Everybody who pitches has a sense of how to make up for a moment when they went too fast or too slow, and they're all going to try to do whatever it takes to get the ball ready to be thrown, and you see some ugly stuff when a pitcher's making up beats in a song where he changed the rhythm and everything was off. So that's what I mean by when the timing's off with anything. Pitching is a precision skill. And that's why when you think about when we looked at the great pitchers in the World Series and we look, and you know, everybody kind of says this, it almost looks like the pitchers are going so slow down the mound, right? Except for a few that I can think of. And this is their problem where they race too quickly down the mound and then they're falling all over at the end. They're not in control. But what you see with good major league pitchers, they have a sense of very serious control over their motion. The ball comes out of the glove. It goes through all these different angles, and then it's thrown intensely. That smoothness and that deliberateness is giving them the precision they need. So then 
once they're facing the plate, they can do what they want to do with the ball. So that's what I mean by you don't want to be jarring the motion. And with non-pitchers, especially if he's not pitching a lot, and you see, this is the other thing. If he's a position player who is really great at his position, he's playing all the time, that's really where his mindset is. So he's kind of rusty every time he gets on the mound. The reason why it's hard to be two positions is if you want to avoid that rustiness and that lack of ability to familiarize himself with this odd timing, the timing that's different, you would have to have a player that practice both positions all the time. So you've got your shortstop taking ground balls, right? Well, you also need to have him doing PFPs. Now, that's hard to do, right? Sure. Because he's, you've got the guys in one position practicing. So the deal is, is it's difficult to train for two positions. But here's what I think coaches, high school coaches, youth coaches, if it's part of your makeup of the team that this guy is going to pitch and he's going to play a position and you're not looking at him, oh, he's just a pitcher we'll put in when we need him, you have to figure out a way to divide up his training and maybe it's on different practices, maybe it's within practices, but he's got to practice both skills. And that is where the challenge becomes. So if he's not practicing pitching, then he's going to be rusty and he's never going to figure this out. Or if he's practicing both, how do you do it so his arm is fresh when he does the most difficult thing, which is pitching? So pitching is the thing that takes the most out of the shoulder. So if you have a pitcher shortstop and you, let's say, know you have to use him in the same game, which makes me shudder, but my job is to educate, he would be done after he's done pitching. He's done for the game. So you put him in as a shortstop first, then let him shift gears, recover, maybe do a warm-up, band warm-up that is specifically for pitching. So he shifts, give him a minute to shift, and then you put him on the mound. And when he's on the mound, then he's done after that because he goes into recovery. And that guy will not be good to go until he's recovered from that pitching. You would try not to do it the other way around because that's where a pitcher can get hurt because he's already got put stress on his elbow and his forearm and his shoulder. And then he's back to doing these short, crazy throws. And that's where they get compromised. So the order in which you can use these guys should always remember pitching is the master blaster of the positions. He's putting his body through the greatest greatest stresses. When he pitches, he's got to be done after that. Try not to do it the other way around. Makes great sense. We try and get our guys, if they're out in a position, into the pen before they take the mound. So we'll get them out of the game and and let them start to make that conversion, like you said. Yes. And I think having the conceptual conversation with them is important. You know, we think that kids know things. (laughs) But they don't. And my 23 and 24-year-old minor leaguers, 
I will tell them something that I think I'm repeating or that they know. And they'll look at me and say, wow, that's really, really (laughs) interesting. And I'm like, you know what? They're so into their skill. They don't think about it. They don't think about these things. So education and information goes a long way. Yeah, so does video. I know you're a big fan and so am I. So yes. sometimes, like you say, us ex coaches, we, God, that, that something looks wrong. And then you get the video and it's like, okay, there we go. Now, the other thing you're going to see with position players that take the mound is you're going to see the rear leg not being used to stabilize them because position players frequently are in the air when they're throwing, right? Right. Yeah. Well, I know, you know, I don't watch that many high school games or college games, but think about even an outfielder in the major leagues. That's what my brain's seeing right now. Plays where they're, they have to run to get the ball and they sometimes thrown from a knee from in the air, they're turning and throwing. So their full body is being used to help them get the ball across the field because they don't have the help from the major shoulder rotators that are the fastest rotating joint, right? They're using smaller joints, but they've got to get the ball off. So they're using their body in a different kind of way. They're kind of like skip jumping into a throw sometimes. A pitcher has to stride out with the back foot down, use the back foot to turn him, use the back leg as a stabilizer so he can tilt forward as he's starting to accelerate so he can use his shoulder and get that ball on that downward trajectory to have the precision. If he is a position player and your better ones are going to have the biggest problem, you'll see them leap onto the front leg. They'll have the back leg off almost at the beginning. So especially when you see your guy who's a great shortstop, great catcher, great something, and then he's on the mound and you know he's got a great arm, but he can't hit his spots. Look at his rear leg to see if he's stabilized when he's throwing because he is in a position where he's usually not stable when he's throwing. You know, the position players that have to stretch out and reach a ball and then maybe maybe throw it, they're probably the most stable. But when you've got these balls being pulled into left field and those guys are, you know, jumping and getting them from all different heights, they're not stable when they throw, but they throw pretty well because that's the way they're taught. So again, being stable and leaving part of their body behind them is completely counterintuitive to their instincts. So you want to think about what instincts does this position have that he plays? And am I seeing those same instincts on the mound, which is where you don't want to see them? And so you think it through. So as you're going to your next practice and you've got your guys taking the mound for bullpens, you go, okay, he's a shortstop. What am I seeing? What does a shortstop need to do? Is he doing that on the mound? Okay, this guy's an outfielder. Is he, what's he doing? And that's a good way to get your brain in gear to notice the little tiny nuances that if you can target it, you can help that pitcher be a better pitcher. Mm-hmm. Sounds good. Is Of the, the common flaws that you've mentioned so far, is there any particular techniques that you could talk about to help correct any one of those flaws? 
first of all, education, okay? And then them knowing the importance of the timing of the upper body and lower body. So just like you would take a little kid and you would probably stand him there with the ball and the glove and you say, now, lower the glove and ball down to your belt buckle and then bring your arms up to shoulder height. So you're not even really dealing with arm angles. So down and up. Then you go, okay, now I want you to go down and up at the same time that you're stepping sideways. So now you've got them going down and up as they're striding and lifting their arms. And you tell them this full position is done sideways and the two parts have to be timed. Normally, if you can get the position player to slow down during that phase, he will then have enough time to do what he, see, he knows how to pitch or you wouldn't have him on the mound. But because he's rushing, it puts him into his other position. But if he's not rushing at the beginning, he'll have the time. Now, once you get that done, if you notice that the ball is too close to his ear from early cocking and he isn't able to correct it by the time he gets to max external rotation where, you know, if you're looking at him from the catcher view, you want to see a nice 90 degree angle as he's squared up right before he goes to extend the elbow to release the ball. You don't want to see him leading with the elbow. If you are then seeing that flaw, you have to handle timing first. So coaches, this is just a general rule you know, as I do forensic analysis of the motion, when the guys have a problem or they've got pain, or I'm, I'm looking for what's he doing wrong. So I'm actually looking in a forensic sort of way. And I can tell you that when you're correcting any type of error that I see, you always deal with timing first, because sometimes it corrects everything. Because believe it or not, these guys have in their head what they want to do, but if they're not giving themselves enough time to do it, then they're in trouble. So you create the timing first. Then if once that's handled and it's the timing out of the glove till the front foot landing, that's where the timing has to be the most precise. That's one of the most important parts of the motion. And also as a troubleshooter, I can tell you that 95% of the problems occur during that part of the motion. It should be the part of the motion that's the easiest and the freest because it doesn't it doesn't have anything to do with velocity. You have intensity, you have intent, but you don't have an accumulation of velocity or an initiation of velocity at that point, you know, in terms of the way the body is contributing to the velocity. So that's a very important part of the motion. So once you get that, if you notice that at max external, his the ball's too close to his ear, meaning he's going to have to lead with his elbow to get it in the position to accelerate it, you have to work with that directly. So you would just put him square to somebody he's playing catch with. You would put him in max external rotation with his arm at 90 degrees. You would teach him to see that and feel that. And you'd have him just throw without acceleration from that position so he feels the shoulder bringing the hand forward. And then when he's in early cocking, you go back then and put him in an early cocking position. You say, now your arm's at 90 here. 
when you turn, you can say it stays at 90. It doesn't quite, but you say it anyway. The body will make the adjustments. And then you say, now throw with the drill you just did. So you have to teach him about the 90-degree angle, which then he will feel that stretch in the shoulder. So you're working with the direct moment when he has a problem. Does that make sense? It does. And slowing things down, I think that's a phrase that we could use as coaches when we see a guy rushing to the plate. Yes. See, we have to make a mound, mound visit and say, look, slow things down. There's no At the hurry beginning here. of the motion, this is what I tell my guys. It's go time when the foot lands. Excellent. Okay. It's go time. And so I go, in fact, I'll say, now listen to me when you're throwing. And so they'll start to throw and I'll say, slow, go, slow, go. And they hear that. And I say, now you say something to yourself that works. And, and I'll tell them, slow it down to where you think it's ridiculous. And their ridiculous is usually perfect timing. And what they start to sense is the ability then to be more secure on the front leg. You see, every position is precise. The knee lift, the stride, the turning in three pieces and all of that creating a nice position into the front leg, and then you're coming forward with the shoulder to release the ball. Those are very distinct shapes that need to occur in the motion. If a pitcher is blending them all together, he doesn't have that sense of it because he doesn't know what he's doing. He will know it. So when you make him see all the positions and you make him slow down, it starts to put him in the driver's seat because he goes, okay, now I know what I'm supposed to be doing. Most pitchers don't. And I, I know this is why I had success from the beginning when I came on the scene because they were saying, nobody has ever said any of this stuff to me. Well, you have to kind of be a kinesiologist to have broken it down. That's why I love teaching you guys, because unless you were sitting in school like me, uh, breaking down sports motion, Nobody knows this stuff. So to know it and then to be able to use it to teach is awesome. You know, it's an awesome thing. So you're the, the timing first and then the, the discrete skills second. And you'll see miracles happen, particularly if the guy is supposed to be on the mound. And listen, if he's not supposed to be on the mound, you'll know it once you try to change some things. And then you just have to kind of, if you can, say, you know what? He's a shortstop or he's a third baseman, but he's just wasting time on the mound. Remember, we also want to help kids spend the most time with what they're great at and what their gift is. Think of it, guys. If your wife wants you to dance, take dancing lessons, <laughs> you dread it because unless you're gifted at it, yeah. you don't want that hour to feel so dumb and so stupid, especially if you're an athlete. You know, I ask all my pitchers, can you dance? All of them say no. And I think it's so funny. <laughs> Nobody wants to be doing something they're not good at. So if you got a guy on the mound and you're working with them like this and you're shaking your head, like he can't get this. He doesn't want to get that the ball doesn't come near his head because uh, secretly he's afraid he'll lose that and then he won't be a good shortstop either. Good point. So you want to see when you're getting some resistance. And remember, our job as coaches is to filter the guys in the right direction. Yes, I know you have a roster and you can only have so many, but think of yourself. You don't want to be tortured 
doing something you don't want to do or that you're not good at. And sometimes that is what's happening. Just because you happen to need a pitcher doesn't mean that because this guy's got a good arm doing this, that he could be a pitcher. And that's our job at observing and sensing what is the kid gifted at and what can he do. So I think those are important things to think of as well. Yeah, I love the verbal cues that you said there, slow and then go. Yes. I'm going to use those. That's a great one. Yes. And they'll feel it and they'll start to feel a smoother transition. Great. Now, you said that you had some questions, some great questions from last episode from some of our youth coaches. Did you want to address those? Yes, I did. Well, yes, I'm so glad you reminded me. So coach Tim Brennan from the East Coast wrote me a letter and he works with 10-year-olds. And so he asked some really great questions. So remember I was talking about after the season, you talk to the pitcher and they have some chill time. Well, so he listened really well because his question was, when dealing with youth pitchers, do they need as long of a chill time as college or pro athletes? Logic being they do not put as much stress on their nervous system, muscles, ligaments, joints, as a pitcher who throws 90 miles per hour. So I, my answer to him was, well, you really did a great job at the first part of the question. You were absolutely right, but you said something at the end that's not as correct. So here's the answer to that. I agree. Youth pitchers probably don't need that much chill time. Listen, we even know this physiologically. When you're training young kids, like if you're in the gym, if the kid's 15, 16, 17, he needs two minutes between sets, blah, blah, blah. A young kid, he recovers way faster, and so they don't need that much time. So that's the same thing. They can do a lot of sports. That's why you look at your kids and you think they're made out of uh, jello. Well, they are, okay? So you're not imagining it. So, yeah, they probably don't need as much chill time. But his logic was faulty when he said logic being that they do not put as much stress on their nervous system, muscles, ligaments, joints, as somebody who throws 90. They have as much stress as someone who throws 90. The guy who's throwing 70 has as much stress as the guy who's throwing 90. If you're in the gym, Steve, and you're benching 200 pounds, and you do it for five reps, and the guy next to you is benching 45 pounds, just the bar, and he gets five reps, you both have put the same amount of stress on your body. Now, I'm speaking here generally. There's some parts of what I'm saying that may be a little inaccurate when we measure forces, but what I'm trying to say is force and stress is relative to the situation, not absolute. So if the kid's throwing 50 miles an hour and he's 10, he's using his body to the max the same way that the guy who's bigger, older, weighs more, throws harder is. So you've got two pitchers using their body to the max. So there is stress on the body. So the chill factor is really for kind of changing between seasons and making sure you're recovered. But if the pitcher has been pitching as much as anyone, he still needs to have recovery. So don't look at the numbers, 50 miles an hour or 90. The guy who's throwing his max at 60 is stressing himself the same way as the guy who's at 90. Does that make sense, Steve? 
Great question. So it's max effort. So yeah. the max effort for him at his 10-year-old versus a 20-year-old in the minors, it's still max effort and they still need that chill time. Yeah. And the other thing, let me tell you his second question, and then I am going to refer back to this question. So his second question was, do they need as long of a buildup phase to be ready to throw off a mound and pitch in games? So what he's saying is, remember, we talked about they flat ground and then they do interval pitching. They need it absolutely as much. And guess why they need it even more? Because their bones aren't completely closed at the end. So when their muscles are pulling hard, our muscles, when they're pulling hard against the bone and the muscle moves the bone, so they're pulling the bones, when they tear, they tear off a bone. So we might get a fracture in a bone. When a kid's muscles get so tired or overused or not conditioned, they pull on the bone. That end of the bone is soft. It's not even hard. So they disrupt the growth of the bone. So they'll have injuries with the pulling off of the muscle. And you can't really call it a fracture because you can only fracture a bone. But if there were a bone there, it would have been fractured but there's a different type of injury that occurs. So yes, youth pitchers, you don't do less with them. You do more with them. Then he said, should they also be conditioned to 79 pitches before the season starts? Absolutely. Because remember, and, and I always say this, you guys remember when we're conditioning the arm for the game, we're conditioning a shoulder joint, an elbow joint, other things. We're conditioning it for volume. And so we're, we're just going to 79 pitches, okay? And we're doing that in parts, by the way. We're doing probably 25 straight and then just do 9 or 12 apiece until you get to 79. You want to do it in kind of an innings format because we don't just throw, 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 throw in a game. Well, if you've got a kid whose arm's conditioned to 79, you want to remember, and now he's ready to go into games, you want to remember you're already – He's conditioned to a great number of pitches, and the rest of the conditioning will come with the games. But remember, he's going to use 25 of those in his bullpen. So you absolutely have to go to a high number. The only time you don't is when somebody is absolutely designated as a closer. And we know in youth pitchers, we don't have that. High school, you very rarely have it. So when you've got pitchers, you've still got a condition. But absolutely, the youth pitchers need it more because they don't have full bone development. And then his next question was, instead of starting at 45 feet flat ground pitching, should they start closer? And yes, that was the one thing. So when I mentioned 45, 60, so for a pitcher who's throwing at 50, it'd be like 35, 50. So you would do that percentage of whatever their throwing distance is. So I answered him and actually spoke with him and got his permission to read his questions. But then he sent me another very interesting question, and I thought this is something I need to talk about. So he sends me something and says, and he actually had me look at something he wanted me to see, but his question revolved around having youth pitchers throw lighter baseballs. So they were throwing three or four ounce baseballs instead of the 5.5. Mm-hmm. Right. So so this is what he was having his son do. Intuitively, you might go, oh, yeah, they should because they're so little. Well, the researchers already thought of this. 
And this is ASMI did this research. It's one of the first research projects that I read from Glenn Fleissig. Glenn then became my mentor in graduate school. I was so intrigued by this. So everyone said, should these young kids be thrown with the same baseball? Shouldn't it be lighter? Well, when they measured the forces, picture throwing a wiffle ball really hard. And I have. You already can feel the pain. And, yeah. yeah. And you hurt your elbow, right? Yeah, I did. <laughs> yeah. My shoulder. Yep. Yeah, of course. Sure. You, and your shoulder. Exactly. Because of that deceleration factor. Mm-hmm. It's so light that the lever has to decelerate more. The forces around the elbow they found with the youth pitchers were like don't quote me exactly, but it wasn't even doubled. It was like tripled, quadrupled. They said, no, 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 we don't need more forces. That's why, in case you wonder, the ball is not lighter. So throwing a lighter ball is never okay. And, you know, I don't even like seeing a hitter. You know, I don't, I watch practice go on and I see these weird balls that they hit and like tennis balls and things like that. I I'm not a fan of using anything that doesn't have the weight of what you use in competition because it throws off proprioception. It throws off the way the muscle's developing. It throws off the way you're receiving feedback. It throws off so many things and it throws off the invisible things. And I think that's one thing that when you don't have a lot of background sitting through classes and science and trying to connect all the dots to do like the work I do, which is strictly educational in a sense, you don't realize there's so many invisible factors that go on. And it's the invisible factors that someone like myself has to think about. And then I can teach you guys, hey, so yes, it makes sense. Throw a lighter ball. He's so small. He only weighs 40 pounds. No, because remember, the forces are going to be maxed out on him. You do not want him moving his elbow joint faster than it's supposed to move in pitching. He doesn't have bones fully grown. So the danger, the danger of the lighter ball which you think is safer is actually more dangerous. And it sounds like you already knew that, Steve. Yes, I did. But I wanted to hear you say it. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Right. So anyway, so Tim, thank you for these wonderful questions. And I said, you know, I say this when I get questions like this from a coach, as I say to you also, your boys are really lucky to have a coach that thinks about things, wonders about things, asks questions, and wants to learn. And my hat's off to all you coaches because I think in a sense you're all in over your head when it comes to mechanics. It would be like somebody asking me to do surgery on the elbow just because I know about the elbow. No, I'd be in way over my head. Unfortunately, all of us in all of our jobs The only way we grow is to be in over our heads, right? So we're in over our heads trying to learn. And it's a job. It really is. But even with knowledge, things are difficult. That's why my hat's off to all of the coaches that listen to these podcasts, try to learn as much as they can, struggle with some of the information. But guess what? Even if you're struggling with it, or you're thinking about it and you're not sure about it, you're still 10 steps ahead of the coach that isn't thinking about it at all. And it's that thinking about it that's going to have invisible effects on you as well. So 
I can't thank you enough, Steve. Your questions were great. It stimulated a lot of good discussion. And I know that you as a coach, when you ask a question, you are representing hundreds of coaches out there that have the same questions. Well, thanks. And I want to thank Tim for those great questions. I really recommend everybody listen to the fix episodes more than once because every time I listen to it a couple of times, I pick up something new each time. So Hmm. I'm sure that's what'll happen with this episode too. So thank you. Oh, that's great. Well, thank you for saying that. That's fantastic. So thank you again, Steve. And for more information about me, please visit my website at www.gymscience.com. And please follow Angel Borelli Pitching on Facebook and Instagram. And thank you for listening. 